is a bloody disgusting podcast network. back to horror queers we're talking chunky knit sweater icon chris sarandon we're talking live-in carpenters and we're talking vampire glow-ups and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking a variety of multicolored hair ribbons oh my god so many hair ribbons joe you would have been so proud of me all i could look at in this movie were the costumes and as listeners probably know i don't notice costumes a lot but holy fuck this movie made it really hard to avoid that (laughs) <laughs> well i mean it's important that we see amy as a little girl and apparently the movie's way of doing that is hair barrettes which is totally fine because then she gets all sexified later but before i even go any further i should probably mention that we are talking fright night <laughs> <laughs> well done well I was done so, i was always so bad at rolling my r's in spanish class so instead of like doing the actual rolling of the tongue i just gargle my throat Oh, interesting. See, here in Canada, we have that terrible Tim Hortons franchise, which I think is now down in the U.S. as well. But they used to have a promotion called Roll Up the Rim to Win, and it was all about rolling your cars. That sounds mildly sexual. Um, yeah, but it was to win donuts. So, you know, unless you were going to stick things through the hole. Wait, what are we talking about? Okay. <laughs> um, oh, also, um, just a point of clarification. We are talking the original 1985 Tom Holland written and directed by Fright Night, not the remake from 2011. This is true. Less gay stuff in the new one. <laughs> but we do have a very, very special guest joining us today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, she is one of the most horrific drag queens of all time. It entertains thousands doing her Midnight Mass Roadshow, among many, many other things. Uh, you might call her the Queen of Cult. She is also the director of the 2010 film All About Evil, which we will 100% cover on this podcast one day if it ever, A, comes back into stock, or if used copies of the DVD ever drop below $70. <laughs> Please welcome Peaches Christ. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on here. Of course. And also send us your DVDs because apparently they're ridiculously out of stock. I will send you one. And the the good news is we are working right now with a very popular horror streamer to get All About Evil streaming, hopefully before the end of the year. Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) The year of queer horror continues. Exactly. Well, we are here to discuss Fright Night. One of my favorites. One of your favorites? Really? Did you see this in theaters when it came out? I did not. Um, I actually kind of must have discovered it on cable television and through VHS. But I mean, I was a big, big fan of this film growing up. And then I actually did do a Midnight Mass screening of it uh, many years back with Stephen Jeffries. Oh, wow. Ooh. Really quite a memorable show. <laughs> uh, and then maybe two years ago, I did a um, a Peaches Christ-inspired Fright Night t-shirt. Oh. So, you know, if you know the, the original one sheet. Yeah. Um, so it's me as the vampire in the clouds, but the, <gasps> the, instead of the house, it's the Castro movie theater. Oh, nice. That's super awesome. I, the imagery for the marketing for this film is so striking, and that they use Amy's face for the poster is still kind of shocking to me because it's like such a good reveal in that third act ah so good Mm. (laughs) love them prosthetic mouths and teeth 
Yeah, yeah. So you did Midnight Mass for this. I guess I wanted to talk about, like, the queer following this film had. Like, I discovered this film also on cable. It, w- it was one of those movies that aired on AMC, like, all the time when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the few films that my sister, who doesn't like horror films, and she was about two years younger than me, she, for some reason, really liked it. And she really connected with the character of Evil Ed, played by Stephen Jeffries. And I did, too. And for some reason, like, they, we just kind of connected over that. And every time it was on AMC, which I swear it was at least once a week, <laughs> always watched it, no matter what. <laughs> now, looking at it, I'm like, oh, like, that makes sense why I would gravitate towards Evil Ed. Not just because Jeffries is gay in real life, but because, I mean, there's a lot of queerness in this film. But he's arguably one of the queerest aspects, just the character of Ed. I don't know. Do you think that the queer following kind of, like, started in the 80s? Or did it build over time, like, as has so many things with queer horror you know, that's a good question because I was I was too young to recognize it as queer, you know, um, when it mm-hmm. came out. I mean, I look back on things now that I loved and I'm like, oh, my God, everything I loved was queer. <laughs> the, the pink flags going off. Yeah, I, I didn't know. In fact, I actually thought, you know, that like liking horror movies was quite, you know. Masculine? Kind of. You know what yeah. I mean? Like. Because I would go to, like, Fangoria conventions and things, and, like, I didn't see queer people there. You know, I saw a lot of, like, nerds and bros and masculinity, you know. And so I I, I never associated my love with horror necessarily as part of my queerness. And now I realize that they're completely, you know, interconnected. And certainly a movie like Fright Night, I mean... It's actually like dripping with queerness in so many different ways, right? Like, it's a vampire movie, which right there Mm -hmm. is queer. You know, like, vampires tend to be the queerest of monsters. And this one is no different as far as, you know, what you might suspect based on the fact that the lead lives, you know, with a man, you know? The neighbor moves in. And so there's like this queer subtext right there in the movie itself. And then on top of that, it's like pretty much half the cast is queer, you know? Yeah, it's shocking. Yes. Yeah. Well, and if they aren't queer, they're very, well, they're very queer friendly. Like, like the guy that plays Billy, Jonathan Stark, I believe he's straight in real life, but if I'm wrong, correct me. But he is also known for co-writing the puppy episode of Ellen, the episode where she came out. Ah, I didn't know that. I mean, mm-hmm. as far as I know, I always put him in the straight side of the cast. Yeah. But, you know, who can be <laughs> sure? What yep. is extraordinary is we can be sure about, you know, Roddy McDowell, Amanda Bierce, yep. and Stephen Jeffries because, you know, they were all openly queer. So uh, for a film of this era, that's real. I can't even think of another one, you know? I, I agree. And I, I think I've mentioned this before, maybe in one of our speed dating episodes, Joe, but like when I was growing up, you know, I didn't really realize I was gay until I was about 14, but I was still like made fun of, you know, I was bullied. I was called a faggot, like whatever. And one of the things that I, I genuinely liked was horror. And I always use that as like a defense mechanism is like, no, I'm not gay because I love these really like <laughs> brutal, gross things. Fright Night is my favorite. But... Right. It's interesting because this movie opens three months before Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is, you know, is always called the gayest horror film ever made. What is funny, though, is, you know, that film has had so much controversy and, like, the back and forth over whether people knew they were making a gay movie or not and blah, blah, blah. This movie doesn't really have that. And I watched the documentary You're So Cool, Brewster, which is on the Blu-ray that came out last year. And they're so, like, there's very much, oh, we didn't know we were doing this, but that's really cool. Like, they're not. There's less defensiveness about it. Yeah, it just feels like a happier environment. And maybe it's because there was more queer cast members and probably crew members. But I don't know, I, as much as I appreciate Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and like what it means for people, this movie's always felt more like home to me, if that makes any sense. 
I think yeah. it does. I think one of the big problems with Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 was that it had all this expectation built into it, right? Like, yeah. the yeah. first Nightmare on Elm Street is arguably one of the best, you know, most imaginative, creative horror films ever seen. And it just blew people away. And, it, you know, it was genre-bending. It was, it was a slasher film. It was a fantasy film. It was... It was such a different kind of movie that when the sequel came out, it was bound, like, you know, the sophomore slump, it was bound to be disappointing to some degree. But the fact that it was disappointing on so many different levels, a lot of it's because they they messed with the conceit of the first one, right? Like, fans really hated that, right? That Freddy was going to come out of dreams. That was not something they wanted. And then they took a big risk by making the lead, you know, Scream Queen, a guy. So I feel like with Fright Night, what's so delicious about it is it's that wonderful kind of queerness where the audience loves the movie, they love the creativity, they love the flamboyance, and they don't know it's queer. (laughs) Yeah. Trace and I, we've actually covered the second film in our editorial series. So Mm -hmm. we've covered the second film in written format. And one of the things that we find a little disappointing is that the second film it doesn't shy away from the queerness, but it's definitely not as baked into the overall premise and even the actors. So like when we watched it, we were like, it's got a female vampire villain who's like got a male henchman and there's like a gender queer skateboarder villain and it's cool, but they don't know what to do with them. Whereas here in the original film, there's no expectations. Yeah, it does. It feels very comfortable and very welcoming and very wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Do you guys know anything about Tom Holland personally? I know him as a screenwriter, and then he wanted to make his own film. So he was very passionate about Fright Night. But I don't know anything about, like, sexuality or... Right. Of course, that's what I'm wondering about, you know, if we know if he's gay at all. I don't think he is. I don't think so. Um, Nothing's been confirmed or denied. I don't know if he's married with a wife or anything. He seems great, but there are no, I'll just say, tells. Here's the thing that makes me think that he's not is because I have done shows with Don Mancini mm-hmm. and Don, of course, wrote um, Child's Play with right. Tom. And, you know, I think Don would say something <laughs> behind the scenes when we've <laughs> talked about it. So I guess my point is I'm going to say that my assumption is based on our queer knowledge of behind the scenes, you know, mm-hmm closeted queers is that what is interesting is i don't think tom holland is a closeted queer no and so it might just be one of those beautiful happy accidents where in nightmare on elm street part two it's sort of like mark Patton became the punching bag for for why the movie didn't succeed he's a fag the movie was gay and there was gay subtext written into the movie and with Mm -hmm. fright night i think you've gotten it's a vampire film we're gonna play around with this idea of two men living in this house course we like gay people we want to you know and maybe i'm at the time i don't think people knew amanda bierce was going to turn out to be a lesbian you know i mean i think you know some of it's just an accident right um and even stephen jeffries at that time he was a real i mean what's interesting about stephen's career is he had hollywood you know kind of in the palm of his hands like Mm -hmm. he was in these massive movies and you know i didn't know this but i learned this from doing the show with him so Stephen Jeffries was living in an apartment with Tim Robbins and Sean Penn, uh, <laughs> you know, back in the early 80s. And he got that movie, Heaven Help Us, yeah, where he plays the Catholic kid. And so Stephen was turning out to be, you know, a really viable, big Hollywood star. Very similar in some ways to Mark Patton. But 
where Steven was applauded for his performance in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he ended up becoming an even bigger star and he crashed and burned for other reasons. I think Fright Night was like a really good experience for the, the people that worked on the film, for the people that were probably in front of the camera, behind the camera, like you say. I think it feels better. It's a nicer movie to watch. Well, I think you're right. And I mean, we can just say, you know, Stephen Jeffries, most of his 90s was spent doing not the best produced gay porn. Right. And I feel like whenever people say that, you know, people are always like, oh, and then he went to porn. And it's always like a downside. And I'm like, you know what? As though sex work is invaluable work. Like, fuck off on that. I absolutely sought this out because I thought as a teenager that Stephen Jeffries was really hot. And I think he is really cute. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm more upset, not with the fact that he does porn. That's great. Go him. But that it's it's not that good. <laughs> it's not better porn. You're like, God damn it. This guy was a cutie who was a Hollywood star. And yeah. And I think he's very, in. you know, open that he's sadly struggled with addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Hollywood Which thing. I- I'm sure... In the 80s. Also, I mean, this is, you know, the middle of the AIDS epidemic. I don't know much personally about, like, how he was affected by it, but I can only imagine growing up as a gay actor. Like, Tom Holland didn't know he was gay when he when he cast him for this movie, but that he did find out during filming. And it doesn't seem like there was any bad blood between them. And I think, for the most part, yeah, like you said, his, his experience on this film was great. But after that, what happened? Yeah. Well, the 80s is not an easy time to be gay, and particularly not in Hollywood. Yeah. When was 976 Evil? Was that, was, that, was that shortly after this? I can't remember. I did see that in the theaters, I remember. That was 88. So, yeah, it was three years after this. Yeah, okay. But that was kind of his last... That's the last big hurrah. Yeah. Which should have been big because it's Robert Englund directing it, but... Terrible script, isn't it? Commercial and critical failure, pretty much. I know, and guess what? I love it. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I'm not going to argue that it's a great horror movie, but... But you love camp. I love camp and I love the sort of weird time capsule that it's in and that it's even about a phone line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Teenagers today wouldn't even understand what the 976 reference no. is, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> a premium phone line? What's that? Right, right. I don't understand. I'll, I'll rewind back to, like, Evil Ed a little bit, but, like, I feel like for the most part, when people talk about this movie, it's either Chris Sarandon yes. or Jeffrey's performance in this film. And... Really? Not Roddy McDowell? Um, yes, kind of. But uh, maybe I'm just thinking about me. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say people, you mean you. <laughs> well, yeah, every, everyone agrees with me. No, I think I, I actually would agree with you. I would say that that Roddy McDowell is fabulous in the movie. Yeah. And he plays the part perfectly. And it's such a great, I mean, again, being a dorky horror kid, like the whole idea of a horror host and growing yes. up loving Elvira and Vincent Price, you know, I just loved his character and loved it. But Sarandon is just oh so oh hot God. and sexy. Yeah. And and then Jeffries is just a scene stealer. I mean, he's it's yeah. delicious camp, you know, and he just has total control over it. Well, Tom Holland had full creative control over this film. Columbia Pictures, basically, they were filming the Jamie Lee Curtis, John Travolta movie perfect at the same time. And they were so concerned with making that a hit and making sure that movie was good that Fright Night was, like, left alone. Like, they could do whatever the fuck they wanted because Columbia was like, oh, perfect has to be perfect, which is really funny (laughs) in hindsight. And now Perfect Lives On is what, like, a meme of the ridiculous aerobics outfits that Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta wear. And that's it. No one yeah, talks exactly. about that movie. <laughs> there were no expectations for this film. I don't even think Columbia thought it was going to do very well. And then it became not a huge hit. Like, it only made $25 million. I mean, only, quote-unquote, domestically. But it's 1985 money, so yeah. it's good. Yeah. 
And it's a self-starter, right? Like, this is not an established franchise. At the time, it's not like these people were big deals. Like, I think Chris Sarandon probably would have been the get, and he's in the villain role, right? Yes. Yes. And it's also that wonderful era where films were really allowed to still be weird and risky. Mm -hmm. And, like, the makeup design for this film is so out there, you know? Well... Yes, the makeups are the makeup is so good. Apparently, it was the first film to use a million dollars just for special effects. Wow, oh, really? and you can see that on screen though, right? I will not talk about the remake a lot, but while I think it's a fine film, the problem is the same thing with that Thing prequel remake, where it's like you take a film that's primarily like known or at least highly regarded for its great practical effects, and then you yep. slap all the shitty CGI on it instead. Yep. And, like, when you watch this film, so many of the key moments, particularly in the back half, they are distinguished by this amazing, interesting, like, I had never seen this kind of creature effects before. And I feel like it actually ended up influencing some of the films that we've talked about that came around in the 90s. Like, when Mm -hmm. I watched this last night, I was like, I feel like I'm seeing the prosthetic and practical effects from Demon Knight in this now. Yeah. It's influential. That that whole era was like, I remember getting the Fangoria magazines and just like devouring these still images that you couldn't believe. And, you know, Tom Savini and these, you know, makeup effects artists were like literally competing with each other, like trying to outdo one another. And practical effects, like even to this day, like I'm still annoyed when I see a CGI blood splatter because I'm like, that is not the same. And I could tell. What did I yes. watch? Re- oh, I rewatched The Strangers Pray at Night, the sequel to The Strangers that came out two years ago. And I got the unrated cut, and I always like to see like what, what they added to it. There is literally not a second of extra footage in this movie, except there's added CGI blood in oh, the unrated barf. cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. Really? Like, we can't even have real practical fake blood anymore? It's real upsetting. It's because it's become so cheap, right? Like, This was a time where practical effects, like this movie has the FX team from Ghostbusters working on it, Mm -hmm. but they're fucking expensive, right? So you're going to use them sparingly to try to get the most bang for your money, but like practical effects still would have been cheaper. So we end up with a really hokey looking, but really fun physical effect of like a bat attacking Roddy McDowell. And it doesn't look like a real bat, but it looks like it's on the fucking stage with him, interacting with him. Yeah. Well, even like um, Amanda Bierce's mouthpiece, which is really only shown in full frame for one scene, that was made over a weekend for free because they realized that they needed something like scary in that final scene. (laughs) Wow. And they were able to do effects cheaper because, like you said, Joe, they worked on Ghostbusters. So like a lot of like the matte photography and stuff, they made all the mistakes on that film. And they could do it for cheap on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there was this sort of heyday of creativity and imagination where, you know, much like A Nightmare on Elm Street and The Reanimator and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, An American mm-hmm. Werewolf in London, you know, these these movies, I mean, Evil Dead 2, you know, where the mm-hmm. special effects were so insane. They're just complete wild imagination that we haven't really gotten back to that, you know? No. No. I mean, the the day I see a film that has practical effects like something like Fright Night has made in 2020 or like in the next decade, it's just gonna make a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. 
I just don't think we're driven by that sense of creativity, right? It doesn't feel like a new frontier where we're trying to see what we can convincingly execute on screen anymore, right? Now it's just kind of like, okay, well, how many million figures can we put on screen? Well, it's an assembly line because now there's more movies getting made. Like, I mean, again, how many movies get released in a weekend now, be they, well, in yeah. theaters <laughs> or on VOD, <laughs> right? <laughs> compared to, you know, back then where it's like, okay, you get maybe two movies a weekend, but there was no VOD. I mean, there was VOD, but it wasn't like it was now because home video didn't exist till 84 yeah it was starring stephen jeffries and it was made down south of california (laughs) it was made in south of market here in san francisco (laughs) yeah well i mean one thing that really bothers me is i'm such a big fan of stranger things and it's Mm -hmm. sort of you know like flawless nod to nostalgia however you know i'm like why could they not have gone the whole way and done the special effects practically of course of course it would have cost an arm and a leg but then i look at something like the dark crystal where they Uh, you know did bring the puppets back and i think well maybe there's hope like maybe there's someone at netflix who's gonna see like the nostalgia isn't just for 80s clothes and music but i really would love to see you know more practical effects be brought back because I don't know, an actor... It's easier to act with with something that's there instead of a tennis ball. Yeah, I mean, you can't imagine... Well, we've seen it in Star Wars, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. they do a CGI sequel to E.T., you know, Elliot talking to a a computer E.T. is is just not going to work the same way a puppet does. At least with a Netflix budget, at least let someone do a gore fest practically. Yeah. You know, the closest we've gotten to it, and Joe, it's a movie we have talked about recently, but, and it's mostly gore instead of something like Friday Night where it's makeup. But, well, it's the same thing, I guess. But it's the 2013 Evil Dead remake that yeah. uses uh, so much practical effects and so little CGI. That, that's the closest thing I can think of to recapturing that creativity that you're talking about, Peaches. And maybe even in Sam Raimi universe... Uh, Drag Me to Hell, which I rewatched recently, which did have a bunch of CGI, but it also had a lot of practical effects. And I appreciated that, you know, it wasn't all CGI. Yeah, I think there's two glaring ones in that film, and it's the anvil eye splat, and it's the goat. But... I would most... agree that the, the goat is cheesy, but funny. And the right. eye and, is yeah, so disappointing because fun. you've seen the eye done practically by him. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, sorry, we'll get back to Friday Night in a second. But um, I wonder if it's because if it was practical, it would have been too real and pushed for an R rating. Maybe. Oh, that's a good Maybe. point. Yeah. Well, one thing to bring us back to Fright Night, which you just mentioned, Peaches, is like some of these special effects don't look as convincing when we watch them now, right? Like all of the the green lighting when the vampires get lit up by sunlight. It's what it is from the 80s. But I think it goes down far better in this film because it's a comedy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a camp sensibility to it where it's all part of the the mise-en-scene. (laughs) <laughs> and it's 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 all it's a, you you tend to enjoy it more, you know. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. There's a frivolity, a frivolous nature to this film, and it's funny because even watching it, I'm like, there are parts of this movie that are legitimately scary, but then there's also parts that just make you laugh out loud. Yeah. And the fact that it finds a balance and manages to accomplish both, sometimes even in a single scene, like I had forgotten how powerful Ed's death scene is. Oh. We'll talk about that. (laughs) But there are moments of genuine pathos in this movie. And there's also moments that I laugh out loud, like belly laugh. 
Let's talk about that, because the pathos is important, and I think that Tom Holland's method as a director is part of the reason why that works so well in this film. So, he made a name for himself. He did. He wrote screenplays for Class of 1984, Cloak and Dagger, and, of course, previous episode with Michael Verratti, Psycho 2. Richard Franklin had directed both Psycho 2 and Cloak and Dagger, and so whenever Tom Holland wrote the screenplay for Fright Night, he did want to direct it, but the studio was like, we don't know about this first-time director, like, you know, this hotshot writer. So Franklin was actually going to direct this film. Hmm. But mm. then he decided to go do The Lost Boys instead, which would come out two years later. When that happened... Oh, but sorry, but then he had a problem on that film, and then they got he left, and then Joel Schumacher was brought in. I was going to say, <laughs> that's not the name I recognize from The Lost Boys. No, I know. We just talked about Joel Schumacher on the Patreon, so <laughs> I had to make sure I got that in there. But yeah, so they were like, fine, fucking do it. We got to worry about perfect. So, but the thing is... <laughs> sorry, you can't see me. I'm hip thrusting right now. <laughs> um, Holland got his start as an actor before he was a screenwriter. So he knew the actor's process. And I mean, Peaches, you might know this. I don't know if you do, Joe, but like a lot of times for film, they don't do rehearsals. That's more of a stage production thing. Yeah, and if it is, it's often very short. It's like maybe a week. Well, right. it's, it's considered, you know, a luxury because, you know, rehearsals mean more money. So mm -hmm. in, in smaller films, rehearsals are really unusual. And even for big studio films, they're really minimal compared to something like a play or a theater. Yeah. Right. So this film films from December to February 1984, 1985. They get two weeks in November. It seems crazy to me how long they filmed for it. Like in this day and age, it would have been unthinkable to have had a movie production that goes for almost three months. Because Sorry, here's the thing. Months. They got two months in November for full rehearsals. Now, wow. Holland being a first time director, he like because like, Sarandon was like hesitant to take the film, especially because A, it was a horror film and it was a first time director. But he basically went and met with Holland and then Holland had like storyboarded basically the entire movie. He had everything laid out. And yeah, then he let them rehearse for two weeks. He made the, all the actors write biographies, like even the the cop that Charlie calls. Like he was part of the production, like to come in and write biographies for all their characters. And I think the only one that didn't do one the full scene. task was Stephen Jeffries. <laughs> there was a camaraderie on set that I think transfers onto the screen. And I think those two weeks of rehearsal, well, again, you're thinking, oh, it's just two weeks. What could it be? But they had like done everything. So I think by the time they even went to filming, like I think Holland did only two to three takes of each thing. And then they were good to go. Wow. I personally feel like that kind of bonding or that kind of, as a director, I would fight for something. I mean, even with my own movie experience, one of the benefits we had was we ended up borrowing people's like big houses and stuff and putting actors together mm -hmm. in these homes. And it really makes a difference, you know, because when the actors can like trust each other and sort of bond, you know, that does carry over onto the set. It makes sense what you're describing because it's like, they definitely seem to have a, you know, a familial nature. Yeah. Like, it looks like they're all having fun. And I feel like, especially in horror films, you can see when people look bored. Because the, everything has to be so heightened already that if someone's not feeling it or they're not feeling their, their partners on screen, it just, it translates. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of really good interconnectedness in between these actors, even the actors where you, you're meant to get the impression that they don't know each other. Like, I think that's part of where the comedy and the playfulness of the film comes from is like some of these reactions that the actors are giving each other in these various scenes. Like, I love the scene where Charlie 
pulls the cop into Jerry Dandridge's house and Billy Cole is just giving this delightfully wacky like who is this kid why is he saying we're vampires what a loon <laughs> well and he he was collaborative with his actors like he let them suggest things and say yeah that's a good idea like it was Chris Sarandon's idea to have Jerry always eat apples even a comment on the homosexuality though like it was Tom Holland's idea like the scene when Billy is filing or cleaning Jerry's nails it was Holland's idea to have him get on his knees so it looked like he was, you know, giving him a blowjob. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that because I feel like unlike Nightmare 2, which was the mm-hmm. same year and obviously the other big gay horror movie kind of of the 80s, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nightmare 2 actually was the top grossing horror movie that year and Fright Night was behind it. Yeah. Um, the homophobia of Nightmare 2 or the queerness of Nightmare 2 is used as a weapon, right? It's it's used to yes to to really villainize this idea that Freddie takes you into a shower and ties you up after going to a leather bar and, and slashes you and you know like it's 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 just how to describe it? It's it's almost punitive, right? Like being gay is the it's not villain. joyful or fun to watch. Whereas the vampires, the sort of the sexiness, Chris Sarandon being so sexy that everyone desires him. The men, the women, the boys, the girls. You know, I, I love that sort of the way that they're playing with it in Fright Night. It feels so much more. I don't know, lovely. No. You're mm-hmm. onto that, though, because I think, you know, there's a reading of Nightmare 2 where it's like, okay, Freddy represents homosexuality. That is the villain. Whereas I think you can read, I mean, obviously, it's literally, you know, Charlie loves Amy, but you can read the entirety of Charlie's arc as questioning his sexuality. And yes. they don't have Jerry as a stand in for actual gayness. It's just that Jerry is the temptress of sorts. Well, and even as a like a role model, like, hey, if you came out, look at this fabulous wardrobe, look at this manservant, <laughs> look at this palatial house. Look well, at all these antiques. All this can be yours if you're only gay. Well, yeah. that's kind of what comes out in when he seduces Ed and when he turns Ed. Like, that very much comes across that yes. way. And so even though he is the villain of this film, vampirism is not fully treated as... It's not a bad thing. It's a safe haven almost, you know? For the I mean, weirdos. let's face it. It's that thing where we identify with sort of like the queerness of it in a lot of mm-hmm. these movies. And, and for better or worse, you know, like oftentimes it's very damaging. It probably mm-hmm. fucked a lot of us up. Like, you know, I definitely <laughs> identified with Norman Bates. That's problematic, right? Um, yeah. You know, but... In this movie, like you say, it's like Freddy Krueger in Nightmare 2 represents queerness. And I love Freddy Krueger, but the way it's portrayed in Nightmare 2 is very awful. There's a darkness to that film that doesn't exist in the other, even part one. You know, like just a a, a pathos that's just so sad Mm -hmm. and tragic and awful. And Mm -hmm. it feels mean-spirited. Whereas in Fright Night... It's really quite uh, sexy and tempting and Mm -hmm. fun. Well, and I think it's sad. It's sad when it needs to be. Whereas you don't really have anything. Yeah, the the pathos you're talking about is not there in Nightmare 2. It's just like, it's something just to get rid of. Yeah, I get that. That makes total sense. (laughs) Sorry, I'm like, I'm I'm sure your your listeners know that um, (laughs) if they're interested in all this. They should check out Scream Queen, the documentary that's about Nightmare 2, because it really goes into great detail about why it's even more fucked up than we realized watching it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We had the directors on um, to discuss Poltergeist 2, of all things. And um, <laughs> Oh, you had it, Roman and Tyler on to yeah. discuss that? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have to listen to that one. We actually, we gave them the list of films we were going to cover, and then they were like, I think Roman was like, can we do Poltergeist 2? <laughs> and we're like, sure. I would we'll never, ever have chosen that film. That's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's a very odd choice, but then Roman had a very good reason for picking it. And I, I'm quite happy with the way the episode came out. I will listen to it because I find, I think Poltergeist is perhaps one of the best movies ever made, like a flawless film. Mm-hmm. And I find that sequel to be very frustrating. Yeah, it's So did we. Frustrating <laughs> is the right way to put it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll roll into this then. So yeah, Friday Night opens August 2nd, 1985. It's a runtime of 106 minutes. Uh, breezes by, by the way. So fast. The budget is anywhere from 7 to $9 million. There wasn't a final number on that. It opens the box office at number four with $6.1 million. Back to the Future is number one. Um, it's fifth week in theaters, so um, wow. it had a lot of competition. But it goes on to gross $24.9 million. It's an older film, but critical reception was mostly positive. As of now, it's got a 91%, which I think is from a lot of more um, contemporary reviews. Yeah. And then a letterbox score of 7.2 out of 10. And... That's about all I have to say on the release. I mean, it, it, what 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 can I say? You know, it's a cult classic. People love this movie. I do think, like you said, Peaches, like the cable airings really put this film in the public eye more so yeah. than it already was because I think it's grown in popularity over time. It's such a perfect cable horror film, though, too. Like, this isn't scary enough that parents would be like, no, you can't watch that. But it's also plenty scary, and it's got great special effects that are going to reel in subsequent generations of viewers. Mm-hmm. Every time we've talked about the films that you have mentioned, like watching on TNT or Stars or AMC or whatever, I'm always like, yeah, they kind of knew their shit when they were programming these movies because they are crowd pleasers. Movies that you are happy to watch a million times and just sit on your couch every time they show up. And Joe, I, I mean, I've told you, you, you know me, I like to make people do things they don't want to do when I think it'll be good for them. Yep. <laughs> because I always wanted my sister to like watch scary movies with me. Like I tried to show her Child's Play. Also, you know, directed by Holland. This was the gateway horror that you tried to use your, on your sister. <laughs> but again, it was one of the, this and fucking 13 Ghosts, the, the remake with Matthew Lillard. Those are the two <laughs> horror films that for some reason she just liked. So every time they were on or I had the DVD, I said, let's watch this movie. And she would just be up for it. And it was something I'd just never seen from this girl who hated horror films. So yeah, she yeah. would watch which movies? 13 Ghosts and Fright Night? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fright Night. <laughs> well, you know, I, at 13 Ghosts, I just saw something the other day about... Someone mentioning it on one of the, you know, groups I follow or something. And it was a queer group, like a queer horror group. Mm -hmm. And all these people were chiming in about, like, how much we all enjoyed that movie, but no one really talks about it. Yeah. I think it's getting a new Scream Factory Blu-ray. It came out last week. But watching Fright Night today, I was like, oh, Matthew Lillard, both in Scream and in 13 Ghosts, I feel like he's channeling Evil Ed in both of those movies. Interesting. That's he's got that same kind of like big bold personality. Well, like in in the in the video store in Scream when like you know like he realized that um he's like (laughs) like it it just feels so much like that performance that Stephen Jeffries gives us in this film. Mm -hmm. I never put that together, but you are like a hundred percent (laughs) correct. Yay! That is so true. My God. Well, and in 13 Ghosts, like, you know, everyone is mostly playing it straight, but he's, like, overacting, like, nobody's business, so. This is true. He's the only one having fun in that fucking movie. I think Roddick is having plenty of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, sorry, uh, take us away, Joe. (laughs) All right, let's dig into this. 
After putting the moves on his girlfriend Amy, Amanda bursts, Charlie Brewster, William Ragsdale, becomes distracted by new couple, er, neighbors, Jerry Dandridge, Chris Sarandon, and his live-in carpenter, Billy Cole, played by Jonathan Stark, as they are moving a coffin in. And Charlie becomes so preoccupied that Amy stomps off angrily, leaving Charlie's clueless, horny mother, Judy, Dorothy Fielding, none the wiser. Secret MVP of this film, by the way. I mean, let's take a pause and just talk a little bit about Judy, because this suburban single mom needs some D. (laughs) She has that line, though, where she's talking about him and she's like, with my luck, they're gay. And I did appreciate Mm -hmm. it for 1985. It's not homophobic. It felt like a line that would have come out, you know, 10 years ago, not 35 years. Oh, fuck. Right. 35 years ago, because Friday Night's celebrating its 35th anniversary. Well done, us. We really (laughs) buried that lead, didn't we? (laughs) We did. 40 (laughs) minutes in, baby. Well, happy anniversary. And uh, no, you're right. I mean, it was so rare for there to be any sort of mention of gay people at that time without it being done in some way that's pejorative. Like, just to say it in sort of a matter-of-fact you know, totally fine way was, you know, ahead of its time. And maybe part of that's like, there's gay people in the movie, gay people on the set. You know, maybe that helped persuade them not to feel the need. You know, back then it was like, you couldn't make a reference to being gay in a movie unless it was somehow to make fun of it or to hate on it. So I know that we mentioned that Amanda Burst probably was not out at this time. Did she come out during her reign on Married with Children? Is that when that was? She did, which is really incredible. Oh, uh, so yes. she did. Married with Children was still on, and she, you know, came out one of the, you know one of the later seasons. And who knows? Maybe maybe she was out, you know, on the set of Fright Night. I don't know. Yeah. My, my guess is probably not. I don't know why, but you know, she was a young actor who was obviously auditioning for roles where she's going to play the girlfriend of a guy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it probably wouldn't have been in her best interest. But who knows what they all knew about each other personally, you know. Particularly if you're spending time together and going out after shooting raps and that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and that's something they did on Married with Children, though. I feel like there's a period of that show where you can gradually see them butching her up almost as the seasons go on. And I don't know if that was their choice or her choice. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Married with Children's another just really interesting, you know, show because it's it's so in some ways it's sort of about how awful heterosexuality is, you know. <laughs> I, I love the show, but I'm always I, I've rewatched some episodes recently, and I'm like, okay, like you could make this today, but like it's still funny. But I'm afraid to like really dive into it because I'm like, am I gonna hate it if I rewatch it? <laughs> well, it's definitely I mean, problematic, sure but it's kind of problematic. Yeah. Maybe you could argue, like, you know, All in the Family was problematic, but right. very intentionally so. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I, I would be interested maybe to go back and watch Married with Children. I mean, something very interesting for queers about that TV show is to, to know that the night Divine passed away, she was in L.A. at a hotel room and ready to report on set the next day for Married with Children. Divine was cast to play actually a male part on the show as a, as a new series regular. Oh, really? So, you know, they were casting Glenn Milstead, who, you know, was most famous for being divine. Yeah, and the idea was that they were going to have this character, this this male character on um, Married with Children, and eventually introduce a female character, and Divine was going to play both. Oh, see, so that would have oh, been really that's fun. fun. Yeah. Huh. 
So, I mean, clearly they were ahead of it. Like, you know, just knowing that about the makers of Married with Children makes me want to believe they were all in on the joke. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, because Al Bundy's... Sorry. (laughs) I won't go too far. We should do a Married with Children episode one day, but... (laughs) What this highlights to me is that there's always value in going back and looking at older texts, even if, as you mentioned, Trace, you're afraid that they might be a little bit problematic. It means that there's still something worthwhile about, like, putting a contemporary lens on an older text. And, like, I think Fright Night benefits from queer readings because it just dials up the enjoyment factor. Mm -hmm. And even texts like Married with Children could prove to be a worthwhile endeavor. So interestingly, I'm, I'm, I'm over here, like, furiously Googling, you know, Fright Night's 1985. Married with Children had its first season in 87. Yeah, it's close. You know, with her on. And it ran all the way to 97. So it had a yeah. full decade run. She comes out in 93. So kudos okay. to her. You know, like, that's amazing. Because that was a hit show. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I hope she gets a lot of credit later in life. I mean, she was one of the first major people to, like, come out of the closet, you know? Mm-hmm. Wait, you said she came out in 93? 93, yeah. Yeah, and that's Ellen came out in 97. So she's a precursor to Ellen, even. Wow. Yeah, Amanda Beers. She should get more trophies and prizes. And I will say that she is like a trooper. Again, like the reason the Blu-ray of this film has so many good special features is because everyone involved was willing to like come talk about this film. And you know, you sometimes think in horror genre, like you find people that are like, "I'm not really proud of that film. It's like a horror movie." (laughs) Everyone's into it, and like even she is. Like she's like she's like sit down for interview. I'm assuming in her own house. And she's just having the time of her life recounting movies. And she's also kind of sarcastic about it, which is really fun. Uh-huh. I haven't Why? seen that. I have to see that documentary. So it's on uh, the latest Blu-ray. Yes. And it is two and a half hours long. Yeah, it's super long. I would love it, though. I think I I love these documentaries that are, like, overly long about horror movies. Particularly <laughs> I mean, yeah. when they're about something that you actually care about. Yeah. Right? Like... <laughs> is Steven in the documentary? Uh, yes, he is. No, everyone pretty much except for Roddy McDowell and the woman who plays the mother. Um, oh. Because they, she, they can't find her. And of course, Roddy McDowell passed away in the 90s. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I will definitely check this out. I haven't seen Steven in years. I mean, we did that show together a long time ago. And it was very, you know, it was a strange time. And I mean, I'm glad to hear that he's in the film because that to me says it's, you know... It's well, nice to hear that he showed up for it. They have two commentaries on it, too, but they're after Disturbia came out, the Shia LaBeouf movie, because they mentioned that when they're talking about the rear window opening scene of Fright Night. Uh-huh. But basically, they were not asked to do commentaries on the DVD release, so they like got the whole cast together, and they recorded pirate commentaries that they then released online so people could like watch them with the DVD. And those pirate commentaries are now on this latest Blu-ray. That's hilarious. Well, I'm making a purchase. (laughs) And it's not even expensive. Okay, but you have to wait until after we're finished recording. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Okay. Um, Okay. Anyway, so, yeah, yeah, we have Charlie distracted from sex for the first time with his girlfriend by these two men. Yeah, and I mean, the film gets a lot of mileage out of the interactions between Charlie and Amy here, where she's obviously not ready for sex, and he's being a huge fucking dick about it, and pressuring her and making her feel like garbage because she won't put out. (laughs) And then, of course, the flip, you know, like, we're meant to look at it as comedy, and as queer viewers, we look at it as like, oh, maybe his curiosity is pinged when he sees two men moving in next door, and all of a sudden, the woman falls by the wayside (laughs) yeah 
And Amy is super pissed, which is why she storms off. So we get a little bit about, you know, him trying to make it up to her. But really, the meat and potatoes comes in when he sees a couple of suspicious acts. So he sees Jerry seducing a woman who later turns up dead. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. We haven't gotten to the boobs yet. Sorry. This is yeah. woman number one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, go ahead and talk about it. First of all, I forgot there were boobs this early in the movie. Yep. And... I, I don't know. I didn't have a house next door to me growing up where I could, like, spy on my neighbor, and I couldn't sneak out of it easily, so I, I was not, you know, a wild child. Aw, you missed out on such a valuable growing up experience. I don't think you snuck out, Joe. Did you sneak out ever? <laughs> no, I lived on, like, the third story, <laughs> so I was not going to try that. But I'm surprised he wasn't just fucking jacking off watching this shit, because that's what it looks like he should be doing. I feel like the implication is there with the way he's gripping the binoculars. <laughs> We only know he's not because he's got both hands visible. Mm. And of course, yeah, so he sees one woman and Jerry kind of catches him and draws the blinds. And we get like the first glimpse of those long fingers. That's great. And then later on, there's another woman and she turns up more or less dead. And we see Jerry and Billy actually carrying out a body in like a bag. And Charlie gets caught. It's very obvious. Is this the bush scene? Yeah. He's hiding in the bush. Yeah. <laughs> right? It means vagina. Yeah. But also like a little bit of cruising, right? Like he's spying on <laughs> men in the bushes. It's very voyeuristic for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you can view the act of like murder or even hiding the body as a kind of this like hidden sexual act as he's sneakily watching it all. I saw a reading online that like they viewed the coffin as representing homosexuality. I don't know. It was a really like, I don't, I don't want to say out there viewing because anyone can have a reading, but I thought it was interesting. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Okay. In what way? So, sorry, this is from an article called Fright Night and Analysis of Sexual Identity, also Vampires, written by Nicholas Nelson. He said, The coffin represents homosex- homosexuality, death being something that was unjustly synonymous with homosexuality at the time due to the emerging AIDS epidemic. Right. It's at this moment that Charlie questions his sexuality, insisting on watching the coffin rather than losing his virginity to Amy. And so with the prostitute, you know, he, he's convinced that Jerry is heterosexual because he sees him with a prostitute. But when the woman is murdered, the terror that Charlie experiences isn't because Jerry is a vampire, but because Charlie suddenly and very violently can once again no longer be certain of his own sexuality. Mm-hmm. That's your academic reading for the day. That's a little deep for me. I'm just, I'm I'm more like rejecting the girlfriend and, you know, spying on these two men, you know, who your mother has already alluded to as possibly being gay. Yeah, that's enough. You don't have to reach that far, you know? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of on the surface queer reads here. Mm. You can go deeper if you want to, but it's also here. (laughs) What I remember being a kid in the 80s, we had these neighbors you know like there were two men they moved in into this big house down the street and i'll never forget my one friend calling them fags and saying you know we weren't allowed to play there anymore because they they lived in this house which you know in this neighborhood like people didn't have a tennis court or a basketball court in their yard but these this house had one and the big family that moved out everyone thought it was so weird that these two men were moving in And we used to roller skate and stuff in that tennis court. So I remember going home and saying to my mom, we're we're not allowed to roller skate anymore there because they're fags. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember, you know, my mother being like, well, that's no reason not, you know, what are you talking about? Like, and and she actually explained what fags meant to be. I didn't know, you know. 
That's so funny because I had a friend call me a faggot, but it wasn't because it, it was a friend. And he was we were playing a game, and he just called me a faggot because I beat him. And I said it out loud, and my mom I heard my mom downstairs yell, "Trace is not a good word." Because I didn't know what it meant either. I actually thought it was a maggot. <laughs> I thought that's what I was saying. <laughs> I mean, you don't know what they, you know. And and my, I remember then being like, "What do you mean?" Like, and I have to say, like, unlike the Fright Night couple, this couple was like. 80s stereotypical like one was like a businessman who wore a suit and was like clearly the man you know and then the other one was like a hairdresser who like designed flower arrangements and you know it was just like the most bird cagey i was gonna say so it's the bird cage (laughs) did you grow up in florida (laughs) right but what i love about fright night is they do move into a house full of antiques and that is such an 80s if you know you know yeah Yeah. Oh, this? I picked it up at a thrift store. I mean, we we just covered What Lies Beneath, and we made a lot of jokes at the expense of that film because it's just so white privilege where, like, at one point, Michelle Pfeiffer asks Harrison Ford if they can go antiquing, and we were just like, Jesus Christ. But it's also <laughs> kind of fun where, in the 80s particularly, films were like, how do we tell people that these people are loaded? Let's oh, right. have the set just dressed with antiques. Well, and, and you're forgetting that the house in Friday Night is directed, with, is directed, is decorated with a bunch of antique cocks. I mean, clocks. <laughs> An entire fucking wall. <laughs> yeah, so this is what Charlie sees when he ends up calling the police on them. So Lieutenant Lennox, Art J. Evans, in his one scene in this movie, they go over and they check out the house. So we see that the inside has not been unpacked at all. So I've been spending the entire day wondering what the story was that they told these women when they bring them back for Jerry to feed on them. Like, oh, don't mind the mess. We've just moved in. It's like, is this a museum? Why are there cobwebs everywhere? <laughs> they haven't hired the maid yet, Joe. I mean, come on. Billy is the maid. Well, I was saying maybe that's what they're, they're, they're bringing them in for maid interviews. Right. (laughs) Now, Jessica, we're going to need you to clean up these cobwebs later. In the vampire lore, Billy, would you say that he's a familiar? That's what I would say. Although I will say that Tom Holland said he didn't even know who he was. He was like someone who had been bit, but like hadn't turned full vampire. So he's kind of like Blade. Mm -hmm. Blade is my term. It's like they they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. It's like... I feel like you're either a vampire or you're not, you know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, and he cops to it. He's like, I don't know what it is. He just is. (laughs) I mean, the mythology of Fright Night is very unusual, like, particularly when you get into the second one, they start to introduce vampires who have, like, crazy claws verging on werewolfism, and one of the things that I love is that these aren't your conventional vamps, right? Well, not necessarily, because there have been things in vampire lore about, like, not bestiality, but like turning into something like a wolf. I think what I like about vampire lore, because admittedly it's not my favorite subgenre, but there's so much mythology to vampires that it's almost like being Catholic where you get to cherry pick which things you want to follow in the Bible. You just have this like candy store of like, I want to make this vampire trope and this one and this one. Oh, I'm not going to do that one, but I'm also going to do this one. Yeah. Well, and I love that Fright Night plays with that here, right? So after (laughs) this... Meeting with Lieutenant Lennox does not end well. Charlie realizes that he's put himself into the crosshairs of these vampires. So he goes to his best friend, Nemesis, Evil Ed, Stephen Joffreys, and Ed 
is obviously having a bit of a laugh at his expense, but he does say, you know, okay, well, the usual vampire lore. And it's like, this is the film getting it out. We're going to talk about crosses and garlic and holy water and not letting vampires in. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is exactly what's already happened. So by the time that Charlie gets home, Judy's desperation for Dick has allowed (laughs) Jerry entry into the house. (laughs) And they're drinking Bloody Marys. They are. Yeah. I will say one of the most shudder-inducing aspects of this film for me is just the wall-to-wall carpeting in Charlie's house. So he walks (laughs) in, and I'm just like, oh, God, so much carpet. Oh, and they're drinking a Bloody Mary. Like, all you need is just one little spill, and that's just going to ruin everything. Well, it's about to come in Charlie's room. Yeah, exactly. Of course, Jerry gains access to the house in this way, so he shows up at night after Judy has gone to bed. He literally throws Charlie into the closet. That Damn it, the I was going to say that. that. <laughs> so there's your obvious metaphor. And then he tosses Charlie around the room a little bit and eventually nearly throws him out the window. At this point, Charlie stabs him in the hand with a pencil and Charlie's mom awakens and Jerry I decides him okay, a value. I should probably go. <laughs> so this, this is the first big makeup scene of the movie. I love that it happens so early. I think this is like around the 30 minute mark and it all looks fantastic. It's a really, really great scene. And they've got various stages too, right? It's not an American werewolf in London kind of transformation Mm -hmm. sequence, but you get to see various stages to it. And I like the fact that it's not a one or the other. It also takes time, right? Like vampirism isn't something that you can just immediately cover up. He needs to be careful about how he exposes himself. Right. Mm -hmm. Literally. In his trench coat. (laughs) Yeah, so at this point, this is where Billy is repairing Jerry's hand. And of course, he is framed as crotch height. (laughs) Well, and that's the funny thing, too. You know, what is his quote exactly? Oh, I don't have it. But he basically just says, like, oh, I didn't think about that when we were making this film. And then I saw it on screen and I was like, Tom. And I was like, what a funny reaction. I think Sarandon probably took this role and thought, you know what, I'm going to be this debonair monster who seduces men and women. And I imagine that he probably just thought of the Billy character as a familiar. Like, yeah, he's just my manservant. But then it's like, okay, so you're just repairing my hand. And then Tom Holland's like, get on your knees. But you know what, though? I wonder if the no, I mean, I know they didn't say no homo back then, but if like that mentality was as prevalent in the 80s. And so maybe straight men like weren't so worried about being perceived as gay. I don't know. Maybe maybe they were. Maybe. If it wasn't explicitly down there, he probably didn't think of it as part of his character. But that to me shows that Tom Holland was immediately thinking about it when he was writing this. (laughs) My guess is that Chris Sarandon probably did think about it. And give him the benefit of the doubt and you know maybe he was just evolved and cool enough not to be afraid of it right yeah i mean you would you would hope yes i will go with that i'm gonna go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where charlie pays closer attention to what's happening on the tv and he realizes oh maybe fright nights peter vincent roddy mcdowell the great vampire killer can help me did y'all know that they, they, he, I mean, obviously, you know, he references like Peter Cushing and Vincent Price in the name, but he actually like wanted Price in the role? No. I didn't know that until I read the Wikipedia entry. It's disappointing that at this stage, Price was no longer accepting these kinds of roles, which is why he turned it down, because mm-hmm. 
I think this movie would have been gangbusters with him in it. Mm. I think Roddy McDowell is fantastic, and I I wouldn't want to wish for a different version. But thinking about what Price would have done in this role is amazing. Yeah, Price was also a confirmed bisexual, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, we talked about that in our House yeah. on Haunted Hill episode. Yes. There you go. Well, we just got full gay with Roddy McDowell. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> I think we might have with Vincent Price as well. It's that thing where, you know, what was his wife's name? She's a huge lesbian. I thought his daughter was a lesbian. I'm looking it up. (laughs) Oh, God. Wait, which one of the wives? (laughs) Edith Barrett, Mary Grant, or Coral Brown? Oh, God. I don't remember which one, but Cassandra, Elvira, told me this amazing story where you're like, oh, he was, you know, he was a queen, and the one wife was definitely a bulldagger. (laughs) <laughs> nice let's see I think it was Coral must have been Coral Brown Be- just ba- based on the t- when the timing of it yeah yeah hmm. I guess this would not be in either one of their Wikipedia articles probably <laughs> Wikipedia tends to be straight washed I find a lot of the time it's like unless well, it's a confirmed piece they eight times of out of ten if they have a personal life section it's usually about them being queer in some way right mm. <laughs> So, Charlie zeroes in on Peter Vincent as his one chance to get rid of this vampire. So he goes to visit him on set, and this is where we get a fun little meta moment where Peter Vincent says that he's been fired because the audience is no longer interested in vampires. They're too interested in killers who are going after half-naked women. So, I love that in 1985, Tom Holland was already sick of the slasher craze. Well, you know... He's maybe ahead of the curb. <laughs> I mean, at this point, they would have already had their heyday because, of course, 80 and 81 were like the big bad years for slashers. I was going to say, I mean, Nightmare is only on part two, but I think 85 is when it's Friday 5 and Halloween 3 has come out. And yeah, it's still very much the big deal in horror. Which is fun. Well, maybe that's why he goes on to do Child's Play, though, because he's like, OK, cool, I'm going to do a slasher, but I'm going to do it different. Yeah. Right. I'm going to do the doll version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, keeps it queer, though. There we go. So Peter Vincent does not take the bait. He immediately just buggers off. And Charlie decides, okay, I'm going to have to do this by myself. So he goes into full battle mode and he freaks Amy and Evil Ed out to the point where they actually go and offer Peter Vincent money. And then, of course, Peter Vincent is like, well, I'm an adult. I'm going to talk to this other person. So he calls <laughs> up Jerry and they just all make a plan. <laughs> I love his delivery, though. There's a part where, she, she, where they're trying to say, oh, yeah, our friend Charlie came and saw you. He goes, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, he is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. So good. So they decide that they're going to submit Jerry to this vampire test. And of course, they're going to rig the game so that he will pass because Jerry ain't taking any chances. He's like, "Mm, I'm going to say no to crucifixes. I'm going to say no to holy water. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Peter Vincent just buys it all because, of course, you're not actually thinking that vampires are real. It's just on your TV show. We should also note that every time Evil Ed references Charlie, more or less from this point on, he refers to Charlie as a fruitcake. Yep. Mm. I always wonder what it's like as an actor. I mean, again, it sounded like he was out on the set by this point. But, you know, to be a gay actor having to spout... I mean, Grant, it probably wasn't seen as, like, as bad back then. But, you know, it's always, like, a little bit, like, I've never myself called someone, like, a fruitcake or, you know, a faggot. But, like, to be in a role and have to say that, I don't know. It's, um, 
I was just wondering what that feels like. I mean, I don't, I don't want to know, to be honest, but it just, you know, kind of self-deprecating. But I wonder yeah. if back then it was just so part of the... It's part of the lexicon, right? Yeah, yeah, the lexicon that, like, I wonder. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I do think it would be uncomfortable if you knew, unless you took it as fruitcake means crazy. I think as queers, we're predisposed to look at it and be like, when you say this F word, you mean that F word. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But on a lighter note, this is where we get to see Chris Sarandon's absolutely gorgeous, covetable collection of signature knit sweaters. (laughs) I die. I think this is part of the reason why I love this movie so much, is that I just want Chris Sarandon's wardrobe in this movie. I want Amanda Bears's. (laughs) Your hair is not long enough for those barrettes, sir. (laughs) Yeah, Chris Sarandon's sweater collection should have an exhibit. Yes. Like, not this one, but the one specifically in the dance club, where it's almost like a wide-knit neck, and it's got some ribbing on the shoulder down the arms. I mean, Chris Sarandon... Did you want to write a porno about this sweater? I... Because you're describing it like one. (laughs) Everyone knows. I notice costumes. I just think that a big part of his sex appeal in this movie actually has to do with his costuming. I mean, Chris Sarandon has a great head of hair, which I am infatuated with. Mm-hmm. He's got great cheekbones, but also, like, the clothes make the man in this movie. He's sexy because he's wearing really stylish clothes. In the 80s! <laughs> he's not really, like, sans clothes very often in this movie, either. Mm-mm. No, if you were looking for flesh, the best you're going to do is an evil head death scene. Oh, right. Yeah. No. Which, let me move along. Okay, so uh, the vampire test is successful. Yay. No one is all the wiser, except, of course, that Peter Vincent notices that Jerry has no reflection in the mirror. So he panics. He drives away. He leaves the kids to get home by themselves. And for some reason, we never really know what Amy's home life is like or where she lives. But they have to walk through a desolate part of downtown to get her home. (laughs) Are they supposed to be in Los Angeles? Is that where they are? I don't know. Huh. That's a good question. I mean, I know they filmed it, I think, in, like, Culver City. It's, like, generic suburbia. Yeah. Because literally we get a white picket fence in this movie. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Yeah, so then we get into this, I don't know, would y'all call it a pseudo-rape scene? Or would you call it a coming-out scene? Nope, his coming-out scene's with Peter. I think it's an offer. This is, like, an experienced queer man sees someone who is different and he literally says if you accept me and the offer i'm making to you i mean i think some people could look at this and say oh this is an older queer man trying to indoctrinate a young queer boy and that's uncomfortable but i actually think that the choice of words that you won't have to feel different anymore and then the way it's almost like a loving embrace when he pulls him into the coat i don't know i read it as i can make your life better so y'all tell me if y'all felt this way Maybe it was because of the age that I saw this film, but, like, the reason I connected with Evil Ed was because of this scene and this line of dialogue, and, I mean, when we get to it, it's death scene, but the line that Jerry says is, I know what it's like being different. They won't pick on you anymore or beat you up. I'll see to that. All you have to do is take my hand. And I remember, I mean, I don't know how old I was when I saw this. I I was definitely, like, a preteen, maybe an early teenager, and I just remember thinking, that sounds so nice. Yeah. I wish someone would offer me like an out like that. That would be really cool because I was just miserable. And that's why like 
again, on top of my sister, like, I, I also just wanted to watch this film because I just really liked seeing someone be saved from being bullied. I don't know. I mean, and we never see Ed get bullied, you know? It's something that we don't even know before this moment in time. But mm-hmm. when you see Ed's reaction to that, you can see that, oh, yeah, he he is that kid that's bullied and, like, masks up his insecurities with this, like, over-the-top persona. And yeah. Stephen Jeffries played it so perfectly, like that outsider kid who's been hurt, who's been beat up on, who's nerdy, who's awkward, who's queer. And yeah, you're right. That moment is very deep. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in the film that I actually like Ed. Because the rest Um, of the time... You're wrong. Okay, well, shut the fuck up for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think for a large part of the first act, what we see of Ed is he is almost... He's embodied the role of the bully. And I'm always hesitant to talk about the way that that people reframe bullies as like, oh, well, they must be hiding something. They're probably secretly queer. But in this film, it very much feels like Ed is performing particular motions because he is afraid of being damaged. But you don't get that until this scene when you see just how emotionally damaged he truly is. And that that helps to reframe the character. But until this moment, I didn't see that. I just found like an obnoxious sidekick friend. Mm. So this is like the film literally recontextualizing a character I didn't like into somebody that I'm very interested in for the rest of the movie. Well, and Pages, like you said, he plays it so well. And if he didn't play it so well, we would feel nothing when he died. Oh, yeah. Which I think is one of the problems with the remake. Well, with the remake... I'm sorry. Quick, quick, quick thing. (laughs) They reframe it to where Ed is the one who believes that... Who knows Jerry's a vampire first. And he's killed immediately. Like, Christopher Mintz-Plass, who plays Evil Ed, gets two scenes before he dies. And then he gets one vampire scene and is killed. And Colin Farrell does offer him that, oh, I can, like, you know, make it better because Evil Ed is presented as a geek from the get-go. Right. But it just doesn't resonate because he just doesn't have... I don't know if it, it's a combination of the writing or if it's Mince Plass's performance, but they just don't focus on that. That's not the focus of this film. Yeah. It's hard to be a fan of both of them because the new Fright Night misunderstands a lot of the character work that this Mm -hmm. original film is doing like it's willing to put in the time with these characters so that you do care when things happen to them you know what they should have had two weeks of rehearsal before filming started there we go go. (laughs) that was the key difference that (laughs) and the effects anyway so ed is down for the count presumably which leaves jerry free to go after amy and charlie in the prom nightest of prom night sequences where he drives them into a nightclub called the club. I love this scene so much. I rewound this all the time <laughs> and would watch this all the time. <laughs> this is so bizarre to me because it shouldn't work at all. Like the movie kind of pauses so that Charlie can make a 20 minute phone call and Amy can be seduced by Jerry walking back and forth in different directions in, as I mentioned, an absolutely gorgeous new chunky knit sweater. And then we get this hilarious sequence, which unfortunately I always reframe through Dracula dead and loving it, where Mm. Amy and Jerry dance and she notices that Jerry is not in this giant room length mirror. Mm -hmm. But it's so good. (laughs) And it's It's... this classic 80s nightclub, which is fantastic. (laughs) It's very horny. (laughs) 
<laughs> there's a lot of sexual energy in this club. <laughs> for a, but it's for a film though that again minus the breast scene earlier. There's I mean well, maybe Amy's conversion later. There's not really any like sex in this movie, but it like exudes sexuality. Well, this scene in particular is really important because this is where Amy literally goes from a little girl, like a teenage girl, with hair clips, with clothes that make her look like she's off to church. And then by the end of this scene, she is a full-fledged sexual being. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. It was the turning. It's one of those things where I think it's easy to miss it's not just that she's being seduced by Jerry in this scene. It's that she's literally realizing, oh, this is what it feels like to have feelings below the waist. Right. I want to bone this dude. Don't and he wants to bone me. This movie deals in a couple of different metaphors, but this is very much a sexual blossoming, which people love it when I say. No. No one does. Bleh. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I just love the music. Well, I, we haven't really talked a lot about the soundtrack, and there's not much to say like that I can really, really like, expand upon. But it's so very '80s, and it's so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very representative, and it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, I'm currently working on a show where we just actually referenced this because we're going to do a vampire nightclub sequence, <gasps> you know, in the nice. show. So I said, well, watch Fright Night, watch The Hunger, you know, (laughs) watch The Lost Boys. Like, there's, you know, plenty of references. That's kind Mm -hmm. of your trifecta. I mean, I guess maybe Near Dark could also fall in there. But I think The Hunger, Fright Night, and The Lost Boys probably speak to each other a bit more than Near Dark does in that that mix. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Near Dark is so special. Have you guys done that one? Not yet. Well, you gotta do that. Yeah. (laughs) We've kind of put it off. I don't even know why we put it up. No, okay, so we wrote about The Hunger, we're doing this, and full disclosure, and like we can cut this out, Joe, I don't love The Lost Boys that much. I need to rewatch it to see if I like it better as an adult, and I've never seen Near Dark. Oh, okay, okay. well you gotta see Near Dark. Yeah. The Lost Boys, you know, I feel like for style and soundtrack, yeah. it, it gets mm-hmm. thumbs up, but I agree, it's not, not as enjoyable as Fright Night, but the great thing about Near Dark is... It's, you know, directed by a woman, which, you know, very few genre films are. And it's just different. It's a really different kind of vampire story. You should have Josh Miller on. Make a note. Make a note. Yeah. He's the kid, but he he plays the old vampire. But he was a child actor. And then he's the younger brother in Teen Witch. Oh, really? (gasps) Top that. Yes. Yeah. We'll cover it now. It's one of, again, like, this whole group of films, these vampire films in the 80s, like, we get asked to cover them a lot. We just, like, space them out. Right. Yeah, they're big films, right? So part of it is we're trying to make sure that we don't do all of the like-minded films in a short We don't want to blow our load too early in the podcast life. Yeah, okay. Well, we could say it that way, too. <laughs> okay, Mr. Blossom. <laughs> Sexual blossoming. Yeah. <laughs> it's our next t-shirt. Um, Okay, so this dance club sequence does not end well. Charlie and Amy manage to break away, but they start a big ruckus. And in the process, two black bouncers are brutally murdered, (laughs) and they are the only people of color in this white-ass film. Well, minus the cop. Who never appears again. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... I will say I appreciate the fact that there is a riot. I completely forgot about it. And you know how happy I am to see people get trampled. Yeah, you do love that. I do love it. Ever since that relic. Uh, 
fills me with joy to see people get stomped. <laughs> people, get at me with a child who gets stomped. It's like my double dose. Anyway. Okay. So Jerry being Jerry is a vampire and he's managed to capture Amy despite the fact that Charlie had a hand on her. So he demands that Charlie and Peter Vincent come to his house and we more or less just cut to them back at his house. He has redressed Amy. She is now in a stunning off-the-shoulder white gown. I want that gown. Did you? Yes, it's so sexy. I like how it's see-through. Yeah, so this is very much like not a little girl's dress. This is very sexy, very mature, and uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're showing a lot of skin. I this. don't know if you'll notice this, but either starting with this scene or when she's like in the basement later, um, her breasts are larger. They made like a breastplate for her to wear under that dress. Ah. Is it to protect her modesty or just to be like, she's a vampire, she got big boobs now? A combination of both. Okay, good. The whole like gown at the end with the breasts and everything, to me it, it was their tribute to hammer horror. Yes. You know, this very iconic sort of 70s vampire look from Britain. I will tell you, and I only this because I just watched that fucking documentary. (laughs) It is, but Tom Holland had not seen Hammer Horror before doing this movie. It wasn't until afterwards when he was like, oh, I did do that. (laughs) So what you're saying is someone in the costume department was like, let's do this. I think think that was probably the case. Someone was guiding his hand because they knew what was up. Right, Right, right. He was busy. He was, it was his first directorial job. He had other things. <laughs> so this scene I love. You know, we've got the evil Ed death scene or where he's converted. And then we've got this scene where it looks like Jerry is just going to bite her and convert her and not care. And then she pulls back and she cues him that she's still a virgin. And he looks genuinely concerned until she relents and allows him, at which point he kind of gingerly bites her. And then, of course, we see the blood running down her back, which is meant to convey, you know. Loss of virginity. The first time. Yeah. 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 I have a question for y'all. Do y'all view Peter as gay in the world of the film? Yes. Because for me, I always saw Vincent Price as a... So you're reading Peter Vincent as Vincent Price and Vincent Price was gay. I I feel like there was always a queerness, you know, for me with Vincent Price. And so I think with Peter Vincent and Roddy McDowell, yeah, I mean... I don't know, but maybe I'm just projecting what I want him to be, you know? No, I don't think that's incorrect because before he kills Ed, like, first we get this amazing reveal with Ed wearing, like, the Raggedy Ann wig, which is awesome. (laughs) It's 80s drag. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But he says something to Peter that's like, I used to admire you until I found out what a fake you were. And I think you can also kind of read that as, like, him being a closeted celebrity in this town. And, like, oh, Oh. like, if we want to, like, really throw the gayness onto these two characters, since we have the two gay actors in one scene here, I think you can can read it that way. And obviously the film is not explicitly saying, oh, yeah, Peter Vincent's, like, this closeted homosexual doing this talk show, and that's why he can't come out, and blah, 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 blah. But I can see, again, these lines that Ed is saying reflect that, if you read it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. I can see it, too. I'd always read him as just kind of asexual. He doesn't seem to respond to either Amy when she's in full-on vampire allure mode, but he also doesn't respond to, say, Jerry. But I can easily see the reading that you're both advocating for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I just feel like he's just this older, sweet queen who's had a very eccentric, weird, you know, career. 
Well, yeah. I think it helps that McDowell is playing him because McDowell does have certain, and not to say that being effeminate means you're queer, but like he has certain mannerisms and even the inflection of his voice that is pretty queer. Yeah. 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 And McDowell has said that he based his portrayal of the character on the cowardly lion. Well, that's oh. queer. <laughs> yeah. Which again is like, oh, okay, I see it. It's vulnerability and it's a bit of a scaredy cat, but also like, oh, okay, there's some queerness in there too. Mm-hmm. I did want to flag something before we get to the evil Ed reveal in Charlie's house. There is this moment where Charlie and Peter Vincent are confronted by, at this point, Charlie has been knocked out, but Jerry and Billy, they actually do the pose that Billy and Stu do in Scream in the kitchen. Oh my God. (laughs) And I was like... Is it possible that Kevin Williamson literally, or maybe Wes Craven, literally looked at Fright Night? Because between this and then the hand with the pencil, which is another thing that happens in the faculty. The faculty! Oh my god! Yeah, Is Kevin Williamson literally just cherry-picking all of these iconic moments from 80s films and then putting them into his 90s films? I think it's completely... Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. It just—it it was so weird. I was like, oh my God, literally, you could do a screen cap. In fact, I would love it if somebody would when you hear this. Just put the Jerry and Billy and then Billy and Stu. It's there. I thought you fucked that up at first. I was like, oh wait, no, they are both called Billy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but then let's get to the good stuff. So Peter Vincent runs out of the house. He finds evil Ed. Ed changes into a wolf, which honestly, for a film with this budget, mm-hmm. I'm super impressed that they took the time to have a genuine wolf. One of the makeup artists, um, Steve Johnson, was a protege of Rick Baker's on An American Werewolf in London. Okay. And he wanted to do it better. And because we don't really see the transformation, but we see the the opposite, which yeah. I think is a really cool way of being like, I'm going to do it different. Yeah. This is just so sad, y'all. This makes me sad every time. I love that it feels like a big action sequence where you're like, oh no, Peter Vincent, and then he protects himself and he stabs this bad wolf, and then you see the wolf slowly dragging itself off screen, and then when Peter Vincent goes down and he sees him, it's just so pathetic and sad. It is sad, yeah. To the point where Peter Vincent literally starts crying, watching his evil Ed transforms back into this little shivering boy in like a fetal position crying about dying yeah it's incredibly upsetting but also what the fuck is this emotional moment doing in my horror film (laughs) what other horror film dares to do something like this holland chooses to keep the camera pushing back to mcdowell and he's feeding the i mean obviously yes we see this pathetic and i I mean that in like a nice way but this pathetic child dying after this really awesome transformation scene, but he keeps the focus on McDowell's reaction, which is this look of, I'm not even going to say pity. It's just, I mean, there is pity there, but I I see more empathy because he looks Mm -hmm. so sad that this child, he's just killed this child. You're right though, that that's a really rare thing for horror to actually have a moment of actual, you know, mourning that's beyond just, you know, the shock of seeing someone get murdered. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in my mind, like, what other horror movies do that? And the one that pops into my head, only because I think it's so unusual, is when Heather Langenkamp is killed in Dream Warriors. Uh, Yes. You know, Patricia Arquette, you know, rocks her. Yes. That's such an odd moment because it's a real sad mourning and loss. 
Mm-hmm. I really do wish that more because I mean again like, like compare something like that to something like Halloween Resurrection when when oh, Jamie God. Lee Curtis dies and it gives you no moment to grieve her before it no. jumps into the reality show. Yeah, and it is something I wish more horror films would do because yes, okay, it's we're supposed to be scared, we're supposed to be laughing depending on the film, but sometimes it is nice to feel those things when a character dies. And I Mm -hmm. feel like if more horror films did that, I'm not saying you do it for all your characters, but maybe if one of your three protagonists dies, I just think it'd make the movie more memorable because it'd make it that much more effective. And the only way it works, and this is why maybe they don't do it, is the only way it works is if you've connected with that character Mm -hmm. and you've seen that character as a real person that you connect with. Well, because this is also a... I'm going to use the word villain because by this point he has become a villain. Mm-hmm. He's actively looking to kill Peter Vincent in this scene. Uh, again, if we're viewing it as him, you know, turning into a vampire as him, like being welcomed into the queer world. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but after I came out, you know, I was very loud and proud, wanted to do all this stuff. I was probably very obnoxious <laughs> and I probably made some poor decisions in my life. Because I was trying to now, that I never fit in in this straight world, fit in in this queer world, and I mean, I'm not proud of some of the decisions that I made in my past, but I can liken that to like him, oh, he's now having to kill this guy because that's what his master Mm. said. I don't know. Yeah, he's trying to prove himself. He's loud and proud and transforming into a wolf. Mm -hmm. It's just shocking. Even though I've seen this film dozens of times, every time we get to the scene, all I can think about is... We're not focusing on Amy or Charlie or Jerry. We're Mm -hmm. dedicating this moment to Evil Ed, who is, in any other film, a sidekick who would just be murdered, and we would move on immediately. Which, Peaches, have you seen the sequel to this film? Yes, but not for many years. Okay, well, he's not in it. And the original idea was, of course, to bring back the original cast, and with the tease at the end of this film, have Evil Ed be the villain. Oh, that makes sense. It does make sense, and I mean, granted, well, I, of course, I'm, I like Evil Ed. I'm so upset that that didn't happen, you know? I would have loved to see, like, a legitimate sequel to this film. I mean, not that the actual part two isn't a legitimate sequel, but, you know, that was had more connective tissue involved. What year yeah. was the uh, sequel? Uh, late 80s, for sure. It was postponed for a lot. It was in 1988, so it was three years later. That's um, still... They could totally have had Steven show up yeah. as that character. Yeah, that would have been amazing. I don't think they wanted to come back, though. Like, there were a number of different conflicts, but Uh, it definitely seemed like the only two who were willing to come back were Regsdale and Roddy McDowell. Well, because by this point, Amanda Barris would have already been unmarried with children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think Jeffries opted to do uh, 976 Evil instead. Ah, well, yeah, Uh, yeah, there might have been a bunch of reasons. Well, and when, you, when you're told, hey, you want to be in this movie that Robert England, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger, is directing, I'm sure yeah. you're going to say yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which one looks better? Be in Freddy Krueger's movie or be in the sequel? For me, like, to, to be an actor would be so hard because, again, like you never know what role is going to make or break your career sometimes. Yeah. And horror can be so unforgiving. Yeah. Well, especially back then. Like, you know, horror was the equivalent of doing porn back then. Right. Hey. <laughs> Okay, well, let's ramp up to our climax. So Peter Vincent heads back to the Dangerage house. He basically takes care of Billy, who requires a few shots, and then finally gets impaled. He bleeds this green goop and eventually disintegrates into a skeleton. It's all lots of fun. I like the fact that we just keep getting Billy coming back, and every time they turn their back on him, it's like, he's still there. (laughs) 
<laughs> but that's it. That, that's just good framing. I, I'm a, and well, that also kind of feels like a reverence to Halloween, right? Because like he's sitting there talking to Jerry, and then all of a sudden you just see Billy sit up. Yeah, that's good stuff. So our heroes discovered that Amy is now rocking new teeth as well as hair extensions. This is our vampire glow up. She, <laughs> yes, now looks like a hammer heroine <laughs> or hammer villain. But these teeth are so awesome, y'all. Yeah, it's like Hammer Horror meets Evil Dead 2 or something. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. bizarre. Yeah, but awesome. The reveal, because apparently, I mean, like I said, they made it over the weekend, but like the reveal, just like, because she's like right there in the camera facing it, and like, you're not expecting it, and then she just comes up, and it's just this glorious fanged mouth vagina. Well, and the mouth looks about double the size, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know how they achieved this with prosthetics and makeup, but it is a comically large mouth all of a sudden, and it's horrifying. Well, and that's what they try to replicate in the remake, but it's all done via CGI. And I fucking hate it. Yeah, I hate it, it so much. Yeah. Sucks. <laughs> Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I will confess that I was always disappointed that we see this reveal from Amy and then we immediately don't do anything with it because we've got to deal with Jerry, who does do a fantastic hurdle through the stained glass window. (laughs) And it seems like we're going to get a big battle, but Jerry realizes that Dawn is approaching, so he just transforms into a bat. He attacks Peter Vincent. Uh, I love this effect. I love Peter Vincent shoving this thing into this bat's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of fun. Uh, and then we head into the basement for the finale. So, oh, well, sorry, this is the mouth reveal, but yes. <laughs> I mean, we got a sense of, of it when yeah. she was still upstairs. Yeah, so Amy comes down and Charlie is dealing with her. Peter Vincent goes after Jerry in the coffin. He impales him. And then we get a rigmarole where Peter Vincent and Charlie just take turns breaking covered windows in the basement. Now, y'all, wait, the practicality of this. I mean, I get that, you know, it's a house, you can't change it. Wouldn't you have looked for a house that had a basement that didn't have windows to the outside? Yeah. And, like, windows on every single wall, seemingly. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's you're, not you're really playing well. with fire. <laughs> Literally. You know what? These are bougie gays, and they like to live on the edge. Yeah. I mean, we get the shot earlier of Billy painting the windows black, but it, it's still glass. Yeah, get some welding tools up on that and, like, really cover those up. You shouldn't be able to throw some antiquing something through the window and break it. Yeah. (laughs) So Jerry eventually gets cornered, and it seems like we might lose Peter Vincent, but in a stroke of luck, Charlie manages to hit him right in the chest with light from the dawn, and Jerry just goes up against the wall. He's stripped of all of his flesh, and we see this giant bat-like skeleton, and it just goes up in green smoke. It looks so good. Yeah. It's really great. Fabulous. I love the fact that they built the production. Chris Sarandon, Tracy mentioned earlier that it was his decision to have the apples. Mm-hmm. And it's because the whole idea of vampirism in this film is based on fruit bats. And that's what this looks like, a giant fruit bat. Oh, okay. This is one thing that I don't like. And I need y'all to tell me if y'all like this or not. It was also Sarandon's idea to have Amy look like his old lover. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of that because I mean I get because it, it was supposed to humanize him to where he like feels something for her and when he dies he's like Amy yeah it's just too much of like one of those like contrivances that I'm like eh, I don't really like that part of me would have liked it if they had to taken it further but then we're firmly into Dracula territory which uh, eh. oh I guess that makes sense yeah that does make sense I mean part of me is that I don't like it because it doesn't fit as well into my queer reading where right. Jerry is just a big old homo with Billy because like who cares if she looks like your dead girlfriend 
Exactly. <laughs> Ditch the bitch and go for the dick. What? Okay. Well, his on. dick is dead. Well, this is true. I think he was bi. Yeah. I think that's probably a more 2020 read. It's like Jerry's swinging for everybody. Well, like, like you a said, lot of Peaches, vampires. though, vampires are kind of the most queer subgenre. So it's like, I think in reality, all vampires are bi or pan. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's when they try to strip them of that and have them exclusively attracted to one sex that you're like, you're a boring vampire. <laughs> so Jerry's dead. And this means that Amy immediately loses all of her extensions and she goes back to being a human being so that they can all hug it out. Yay! Happy Yay. ending for everyone. Heterosexuality. <laughs> and in the coda, Charlie ignores both a new episode of Fright Night, because Peter Vincent is back on TV, but also Evil Ed's laughter from across the street. You were so cool, Brewster! Yeah, it's so good. Which I think is hilarious that that became one of the big taglines for this film. To the point that that's what the documentary's called. <laughs> it is! I think it's just because people love Evil Ed. And then, of course, it segues into the title track of the film, and it is a fucking banger. Fright Night! <laughs> it really I, is. It's, it's so good. I can totally picture John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis working out in the studio to oh it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Columbia. The joke's on you. Yeah. Next week on Horror Queers. Perfect. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never seen it. It's not good. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, you know, it's forgettable. It's not, see, it's that, not bad enough to be thing. good. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I see. Hmm. So, yeah, it, it's not good, but it's also, like, not so bad that it's, like, it's not a fun watch, you're saying. Like, watch the highlights on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like, because there, there are some funny sequences, certainly some of the aerobics, but most of it's boring. Ugh. That that's is the, the worst. worst a movie can be. I can yep. take a movie that's great. I can take a movie that's terrible. But if it's one of those things and boring, no. that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, no. no. But that's, uh, that's, that's Fright Night. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything else to say on this film? Any lasting thoughts? Peaches? It's just one of those movies that continues to, at least for me, it continues to inspire things over and over again. Whether it's a t-shirt or... You know, an immersive theater experience. It's, it, you know, I, I feel like it's one of those gifts that keeps on giving. Because, I mean, like, drag is so inherently based in creativity. You can't really be a non-creative drag queen. So seeing something like this, it would inspire, I feel like. Yeah, it was definitely, like, a new vision. And one of those weird movies that, like you say, it sticks with you. And we had the luxury and the gift of cable television where we could watch it over and over with our siblings, you know, growing up. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting in some kind of hypothetical alternative world if this film was released in a different time where they didn't have the luxury of cable, whether or not Fright Night would have stayed in the public consciousness in the same way. That's true. I mean, I wonder that about a lot of these movies. But it also makes me wonder about the films that have been forgotten, you know? Is there another gem out there that's like Friday Night that people just haven't, like, aren't talking about enough? I don't know. Oh, Probably. I'm sure there are. It feels like such a, like, a dice toss, right? Where you mm -hmm. just never really know what's going to connect with people or why something fades into obscurity. Well, and Friday Night is a rare cult film that, like, did make its money back. And that's the problem with cult films, that you never know when you're making one. Yeah, it's true. That's true. I love this movie unabashedly. I know, like, people of a certain age feel a strongness and a connection to Nightmare on Elm Street 2. But for me, Fright Night 
it's the film that really initiated my interest in queer horror because it was the film that was so explicitly gay that I first caught on to the concept. I couldn't watch it and not be like, there's something weird about those two men living next door. And I just feel like I owe this film such a debt of gratitude because I've loved everything about exploring queer horror and I feel like it may not have happened or it wouldn't have happened in the same way without Fright Night. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to go on a diatribe because I was thinking about like, oh, what if this one thing wouldn't have it have existed? You know, like the butterfly effect. Like, where would we be today? Terrible <laughs> thought. <laughs> Well, we wouldn't have global warming, and you wouldn't have an orange Cheeto as a president, but then we wouldn't have Chris Sarandon's beautiful sweater collection. Just go for the hair. (laughs) Okay. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, Peaches, do you have anything you'd like to plug or discuss or tell us what you're up to in this wonderful time of America Uh (laughs) and the world? I'm starting to do, uh, you know, some, some online shows where I'm hoping it will maybe become a little bit of a series um, so I'm interviewing some cult movie icons. Um, I'm starting with Mink Stoll, uh, but I hope to move on to, you know, some other folks that I've done shows with over the years, live shows, and kind of recreating those for the internet. And then in addition to that, I'm working on my um, immersive haunted attraction. And what we've decided is we're going to put up the show because at some point, it may not be this Halloween, depending on where we are with covid But at some point, we're thinking this might be the kind of theater that's first able to open because we can perform for very small audiences. You know, Mm -hmm. actors can wear masks. You know, the guests can wear masks. They keep moving. They're not sitting down. You know, traditional theater in an auditorium isn't coming back anytime soon. But this kind of theater may be something we can do. So I'm working on that. Look at you charting a brave new path. Trying to. It's so productive, too. I'm so jealous of you. (laughs) Well, thank you. And if people wanted to find out more about any of these things, would they follow you on social media? Yeah, that'd be great. I'm on Instagram at the Peaches Christ, and uh, on Facebook.com as Peaches Christ, and on Twitter. And all of those three are verified, so you can <laughs> you know figure out which is the Wait, real me pretty easily. Is there an at Peaches Christ on Instagram? Uh, I'm at Peaches Christ, but there was. Originally, someone else who was at Peaches Christ. Well, because one of them is the Peaches Christ. I don't know if one of them, if there is also. Oh, yes. On Instagram. Yes, yes, yes. Someone (laughs) took at Peaches Christ. What a fucker. Yeah, they do that, you know. Yeah, of course they do. There's all (laughs) different, like, variations they have. Is it because they want you to, like, pay to, like, get the handle back? Well, you know, that's what I thought. Like, at one point with Twitter, it was originally, I was, I think, at the Peaches Christ. And so I reached out to at Peaches Christ and I said, hey, you may not know this, but, like, I'm this person who goes by this name, and it'd really mean a lot to me if I could, you know, have this handle. And the woman wrote back, like, yeah, I'm a big fan. I love what you do. And I was like, okay, so. And then she just stopped talking to me. So weird. So she didn't even ask for money. I don't get it. It's like, well, I mean, you're not that big of a fan. (laughs) I wonder if maybe she thinks she'll get more followers if they think it's you. But, like, clearly she's not putting out, like, gorgeous drag pictures on her Instagram. (laughs) She was barely putting out anything. So this is funny. I messaged Twitter, and they said there was nothing they could do. And No, they won't help you at all. (laughs) Yeah, months later, I got, like, a message from someone at Twitter that said, grab it while you can. I think maybe because Twitter is a local company, I might have, you know, reached... Made a few friends. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like... 
But so I do have it now. But yeah, on Instagram, someone else has my name. There was just some gay at Twitter headquarters who was like, this handle's become free. Quick. Or I think he it. took it away from her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we've deactivated your account for infrequent posting. Yeah, I think, I think he finally was like, fuck that bitch, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if you'd like to stay in touch with us on social media, you can like our Horror Queries Facebook page or join our Facebook group to keep in touch with other listeners. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram at horrorqueers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. We do love reading the reviews unless they're bad. Don't do that. <laughs> you can buy Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and other shit at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E-Public.com. Buy the shit. And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. We are wrapping up July, and we are heading into August with, well, quite a treat, actually. So next month, we actually have two audio commentaries, one on Deep Blue Sea to pair with our full-length episode on Deep Blue Sea 3, and we'll have another audio commentary on Drew Goddard's The Cabin in the Woods. We are also going to have another full-length episode on Jay Baruchel's second directorial effort, Random Acts of Violence, which also stars Jordana Brewster, and coincidentally enough, The Cabin in the Woods is Jesse Williams. Lots of sharks and Jesse Williams. Yep, <laughs> that's apparently our theme for August, sharks and Jesse Williams. You are correct, sir. <laughs> I'm down with it. Um, and yeah, so what are we covering next week, Joe? So, we did such a great job of remembering the anniversary of Fright Night, 35 <laughs> years, that we're going to do another anniversary film next week. We're a week late, but we're going to do 2005's The Descent, which is celebrating its 15th anniversary. And it's got some big lesbian energy in it, and uh, it is one of the few films where if anyone asks me, what is a film that scares you? What's a good scary movie to watch? This is always at the top of my list. Mm-hmm. And I am a Juno fangirl, so I'm going to make some enemies next week. <laughs> Which is ironic, considering your your stance on the whole cheating thing. This is true. Yeah. All right. Um... I contain multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so yeah, tune in next week. And Peaches, again, thank you so much for coming to talk about Fright Night with us. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> and on that note, we can cross out Fright Night. Yes, and cross out horror queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.